everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everybody, welcome back. I am back, of course, with Brian Bowling, the man himself. Um, and we've been, you know, sinking into some pretty interesting, I think, medicine kind of topics recently. Uh, much to probably Brian's chagrin, but I think we have to deal with some of these things because you know, we're, no matter what kind of patients you're taking care of, they all have bodies, and they definitely all have kidneys, and that's what we're going to explore today: the uh, perennial question of hyponatremia, a big category of disease with a lot of causes, uh, probably a lot of pitfalls, and something that I think we all have to understand at least a little, no matter what we're doing. So Brian's going to walk us through a little bit of this topic um, with, I think, the, the perfect guest. We have here Dr. Paula Adams, uh, who is down at the University of Kentucky with Brian and is dual trained in both nephrology and critical care. Uh, he did a combined fellowship down that way and now splits his time between both arenas. So no better person to explore the topic of hyponatremia in the ICU. Um, Brian, you going to give us a little bit of a case? Yeah, so I will confess right off the bat, I'm way out of my depth here. Um, Paul works upstairs in the smart ICU, the Mickey. I work downstairs in the dumb guy surgical ICU. Um, and what I know of sodium tends to come from the neuro ICU, where um, we consider you you hyponatremic if your sodium is less than 145. Um, so. Uh, so we're, we're going to do our best to, to feel through this, but I do think this is something that is probably one of the more common uh, electrolyte imbalances that we encounter in the ICU, even in the surgical ICU and the neuro ICU, where we maybe try to ignore it a little bit more. Um, but it, it's certainly one that comes up a lot and one that I feel is potentially kind of confusing for students, especially. I, I have students who um, seem to struggle with hyponatremia. So I thought this would be a good thing to, to talk about and maybe we can all learn something together. Um, so Paul, you are on shift and you get a call from the ED about a new patient. Uh, and this patient is a 65 year old gentleman who comes in with some altered mental status, uh, a couple of days history of fever, just malaise, uh, just, just isn't looking very good. Um, the ED has sort of worked him up. Initially, consulted hospital medicine. Uh, they came down and saw him and said, this guy, does he looks too sick for us. I think he needs to go to the ICU. So uh, so they call you to come down and see him. And you find, uh, as advertised, uh, a 65-year-old guy who's not looking like he's in the best of health, probably at baseline. Um, he is altered, but uh, you know he's protecting his airway. He is able to converse with you. He's very confused. Uh, at times he is not just confused, but, uh, you can't even carry on a conversation with the guy. Uh, his wife's at the bedside and says, this has been going on for about two days, but it got significantly worse this morning. Um, the ED has started some work up on him. He, uh, he's a little febrile. He's a little tachycardic. Uh, you notice he has a little bit of a distended abdomen, um, and he got some lab work back. His CBC is significant for a little leukocytosis to 13. Um, his H and H and platelet count are all okay. Um, his electrolytes are not bad except for his sodium. His sodium is 128. Um, so start with 
where do you go from here? How do you approach this patient? Uh, I think there's, there's two things that you look at somewhat simultaneously. Um, one is, you know, you decide, oh, how much is this, how, how significant is this hyponatremia, right? Um, is 128 bad enough to be causing this guy to be altered, you know, encephalopathic, confused, you know, definitely different from his baseline? Um, and is that something that we need to correct quickly or do we have time to kind of, you know, take your time and play it, play it safe, right? Um, the other thing that you're going to want to consider is why is this happening? Um, why is the sodium low? Because that's going to change your management and what's going to happen down the road, uh, depending on what um, is driving his hyponatremia. So, you know, the intensivist in me wants to think first, you know, do I need to solve this problem like right now? Right. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think this is a right now issue. Um, there may be some sources that would argue with me on that. Uh, especially some of the, you know, more critical care and ER are driven, you know, uh, guidelines, recommendations, test prep courses, things like that, that, you know, if you see somebody with a low sodium um, and they're altered, confused, like some people want you to say, you know, hypertonic solution is something that we should be considering. Um, I will tell you that I feel like that gets you in the hot water down the road, right? Like you fixed it now. Great. You wrote, you know, you, you, you changed that number by six mil equivalents or something. Um, but 12, 18, 24 hours down the line, it really puts you at risk to overcorrect if you don't know the underlying mechanism, which we don't know yet. Right. Right. So, um, I, for this guy, I would just put the brakes on that and say, let's just not worry about this. His sodium is low, but it's not terribly low. He's encephalopathic, but it sounds like he's protecting his airway. Right. He's not seizing. Um, he's not obtunded. Right. So we have time here uh, to figure it out which then kind of moves me on to the second point, which is let's figure it out. Um, just from your history, right? Like I know this is, this is probably like a, uh, this is, we'll just say we're going to develop a pretest probability here, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to anchor on this, but just from the history, you know, this is a guy that has developed something out in the community. He probably hasn't been feeling well for a few days before he presented, right? And usually when people don't feel well, right? Um, from a viral illness or, or bacterial pneumonia or whatever, right? They're stuck being weak and sore and feeling terrible on their couch, right? And, and you don't really want to eat anything. Speaking from like recent experience here, <laughs> this time of year, um, you don't really want to eat anything. It's a, it's, it's a chore to even like drink some water and whatever you take in is probably not going to be a lot of solute, right? Everybody pushes water and that's a good thing. We don't want to dehydrate with our excess, uh, insensible loss with fever and things like that. Right. Um, and so you end up taking in a lot of hypotonic solution and you end up, you know, excreting a bunch of isotonic solution in your urine and your, in your stool and, you know, sweat, things like that. And so as you see the balance there is you end up diluting yourself because you're not taking in solute, you're not eating anything, you're just drinking water. And so that's how you end up with this, you know, hypovolemic to euvolemic um, hyponatremia, uh, which, you know, if you want to put it into these traditional buckets would be a hypotonic hyponatremia, right? So you're, you're, you've literally just diluted out the sodium in your body um, by drinking water instead of 
water plus your usual solute intake. So I would put him into that bucket um, if that makes sense and, you know, can certainly expand upon that decision from there. Now, you make it sound like uh, if you're taking in fluid and solute at a rate that's not exactly equal to what you're losing, you're going to end up changing your sodium. But isn't it true that the the kidneys are going to try to maintain a normal serum sodium, uh, regardless of if I'm drinking water or or salt water or whatever else? They will. Uh, And and this is where, you know, this is probably more of a nephrology-centered um, question now to where you say, well, why, why don't your, your kidneys regulate? Well, the guy's sick, right? Number one. So, um, maybe he's got a bit of an AKI, right? Uh, maybe, maybe he doesn't quite, isn't able to regulate that as well. Um, he can't really reclaim all of that sodium that he's losing. Maybe he's spilling some of that in his, in his urine because his proximal tubules are injured, right? That's 85% of all sodium reabsorption. It's proximal tubule. It's also the most energy dependent one, right? So when you're Blood pressure starts getting low. You start looking kind of bad. It's the first thing to go. Um, the other thing to consider is he's 60 something years old. Um, yeah, we lose the ability to concentrate our urine as we get older. Um, so a young person can concentrate their urine down, you know, down to 1200 milliosms, super, super concentrated. You know, uh, some frail elderly person, 80, 90 years old, might only be able to get it down to three or 400 milliosms, which is basically serum, right? It's isosinuric. And so this guy may be somewhere in the middle. Um, and solute clearance is going to be related to what, how concentrated he can make his urine. Um, and so if he can't reclaim all of that sodium because he's just peeing it out, because he's just peeing out dilute urine, um, because he can't concentrate it anymore, right? Um, that's going to be an issue. That makes okay. sense. So on one hand, kidneys will try to yes. normalize your, you know, serum osmolality. But on the other hand, all kidneys are not created equal, and age and other disease yeah. like AKI might affect that. Exactly. There's limits to that, right? Diabetes, hypertension. You know, it 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 will impair these things over the years. So. Okay, let let's back up real quick if we can to this idea of is this a problem we have to deal with now right you had said that certain things may take issue with your your statement that it isn't uh an emergency what in your mind constitutes because let's be honest right there's some things in critical care that we address even though we know it's a band-aid we're not we're not addressing the problem but you know i've got a guy that's got a k of one i got to give him k it doesn't really matter at that point why is k is one he's going to arrest if I don't give him some K. So at what point do you look at this guy and go, it, it really doesn't matter right now why his sodium is low. I just have to fix it. Uh, in my mind, probably seizure. That's the real big one. Um, if somebody's obtunded and they can't protect their airway, we can intubate them, right? Like, I don't really think you're going to give them, you know, 30 mils of hot salt and they're going to just like wake up, right? Um, to me, then it goes back to ABCs and you're like, well, airway is first, right? Like take care of that. Um, seizures, we can't just let that go on. And you, you know, somebody's sodium is 110 and they're seizing, you're not going to Kepra load them. That's, you know, that's not going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, you're not going to give, it's like alcohol withdrawal seizure, right? You're not going to give Kepra to somebody who's withdrawing. It's not going to work, right? You could use Benzo. It's the same thing here. Um, in my mind, that's that's the one thing we should do uh, is seizures. 
Uh, and again, it's, it's like other things in critical care, you can do things simultaneously, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody is obtunded and you're worried that they can't protect their airway and their sodium is 110, you can, you can, you know, hang the hypertonic and you can intubate them at the same time, right? Like, why would you not do that? Um, it just, when, when it comes down to these things, it's like test questions and board answers and, you know, where you have to pick like the A, B, or C choice, uh, people like to push correcting hypernatremia or hyponatremia when, you know, you have things like altered mental status, even at a, a confusion, you know, I'm just a little off. I can't remember the day of the week level. Um, and usually they'll give that with you a, with a, with a much lower sodium, you know, 115, 118, something less than 120 mm-hmm. usually. So that's why I say with this guy, especially at 128 or whatever, I'm, we'll figure that out later. Okay. All right. So now you're moving on to this, why is he hyponatremic? And, and your theory is that this is probably imbalance between solute and isotonic fluid intake from illness, maybe combined with some AKI or. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. I mean, in the back of your mind, right. Could this be chronic? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, States of chronic hyponatremia, heart failure, cirrhosis, you know, is he on a thigh side, something like that. I mean, you just, you know, you're going to look into these things as part of trying to come up with the etiology. So do you approach a hyponatremia then by sort of trying to differentiate volume status uh, or, or what kind of, what's your first? Uh, I feel like the volume status thing is a trap. Um, I think the first thing to ask yourself is, uh, is ADH active or not? Um, volume status, right? Like I feel like it's it's been beaten in the submission that none of us can determine a volume status from just like looking at the patient, right? Unless they're on like an extreme end of the spectrum, we, we it's basically just a coin toss, right? Uh, and when you're looking at three categories of like hypovolemic, euvolemic, hypernutri, you know, hyper like there's so much gray area there centering around that, like euvolemic that I don't think it's worth trying to, trying to look at it that way. I like I said, ADH being active or not is the, um, the defining factor for me. So you gotta ask yourself, well, what does ADH do? Um, antidiuretic hormone, right? So it, re- it reclaims free water from your tubules and the distal tubule there. Uh, and it's controllable right? It's an aquaporin that's inserted into the, into the tubule, um, under influence of the hormone of ADH. And so if you have a need to retain more water, which is usually a high plasma awesome. So, right. Your blood is very, very concentrated for whatever reason. Um, you take in more water, ADH gets turned on, right? Um, there are certain things that trick that, Right. So if you have heart failure or cirrhosis and you have very poor um, circulation and perfusion to your kidneys, uh, your kidneys are going to make rather concentrated urine. They're going to have a lot of time to suck up all that sodium, you know, that travels through the tubules because it's moving at a slow rate. And the kidneys are going to interpret that as, oh, wow, I'm very volume down. Right. I'm very concentrated. I need to suck up more water to compensate for that. And that's when ADH is then present. Um, same thing with 
maybe the picture I'm painting on this guy, right? Is he did eat and drink for a little while? Yeah, he took in some water, but honestly, he's probably a little on the dry side. You know, he's he's yeah, didn't take any solute in. His ADH, he's sick in other ways, right? Um, his ADH is going to be probably pretty active um, in, in trying to reclaim water and put it back into him. So, so I kind of say, do a little thought experiment and say, would you expect ADH to be active in this person or not? So this is a conceptual framework. It's not like you can yes. look at a patient and know their ADH, but, yes. but from their history, you might yeah, be able to. Yeah, from the history and, and kind of what you're making up. And, you know, you can test it. Um, a urinosome greater than 300, uh, slam dunk that ADH is working, right? 300 is kind of the cutoff, right? If it's less than that, you don't have ADH present, right? So, um, and then you have to entertain other ideas. But if you got this on this guy and it was high, then you say, okay, well, here you are trying to concentrate your urine, you know? So would that be the next step in someone like this? You would, you would check on some of these urines, but you would have a, a thought going into it, what you think is going on. Yes. Um, all right. So let's say you, let's say you do get a urinosm and, um, it's 400, 400. Yeah. So you're right on the, you're right on the, the cusp there, right? Yeah. You're like, well, I think you got some ADH active, but it's not, it's not whopping. Right. And you could say, well, is this, is this just the best you can do? You know, because you're a little older and maybe you got some kidney disease and whatever. Um, but it's there, right? You, you would kind of say, well, he, he may be a little dry. It would certainly fit the picture, right? That his, his kidneys are trying to, to retain some water in order to bump up his blood pressure, right? Uh, to, to kind of fluid resuscitate itself. Um, but but it, it would fit the picture. And I would say, you know, in this situation, uh, it would still fit the, the picture of you just, you know, hypotonic, hypo, you know, hyponatremia. Okay. So at this, at this point then, are you less concerned with the hyponatremia and more concerned with just the whole picture of why is he sick and to begin with and sort of going down that route then? Yeah, probably. Look, let's figure out why you're sick to begin with. I would say, you know, in these people that are somewhat hypovolemic, definitely hypotonic, you know, and, uh, trying to conserve water, um, fluid resuscitation is going to fix it. They're going to get some salt, some saline in there. They're going to get, you know, re-expanded. Um, their kidneys are going to start working properly again, and they're going to dump that excess water that they've been taking in over the course of a few days. Right. Um, and that, that presents a danger for overcorrection because the kidney is just going to dump water. Your urinosome is going to go from 400 to hundred. Right. And that's, that represents free water leaving the body. Um, and you've just, everything that we give, I feel like comes in some kind of saline product around here, right? So uh, you're just going to give them solute and not a whole lot of other free water. And that sodium is going to correct pretty quickly. So that's, that's where you get into danger. That would be my, my kind of only caveat to say, well, we can focus on more what's wrong with this guy rather than his hyponatremia at this point. Okay. So you're going to start kind of fluid resuscitating him. And he's a little tachycardic. His blood pressure's we'll say soft, right? I don't like the, I don't really like the word soft, but we'll just say it's soft. He's not really hypotensive, but, um, so you're going to give him some fluid. Are you going to give him normal saline then to give him some sodium or are you less concerned about that and just going to do something balanced? I'm probably giving something balanced. I mean, I think, I feel like there's enough evidence now that says, you know, uh, balanced is better. Um, and there's really not going to be a whole lot of difference, right? You know, you're talking 134 in LR versus 154, you know, milliosms of uh, 
of sodium, right? So um, you, you, you're, it's really hard to overcorrect somebody with with normal saline from a from a sodium standpoint if you do the math on it, um, and even more so with LR. So I'll just pick the kidney safe option and just choose LR. All right. So are you, you going to bolus him? Or are you going to put him on some fluid maintenance fluids? Both. I'd probably just bolus him, see what happens. You know, I mean, in this case, it's just like, hey, septic, just give him his thirty mils per kg. Follow the follow the guideline there, and you know, reassess right at your three hour window or whatever the. And just to be clear, you are approaching this not as a replacement of their sodium, although you are, but you're volume resuscitating them. Exactly. They're hypovolemic, so you're giving them that back, and then their exactly. bodies will kind of fix themselves. Yeah, because as you alluded to earlier, the kidney will figure it out. We just need to kind of give the kidney a better environment to work in. Does that make sense? Once yeah. you kind of allow them to release that ADH tone, then they can start doing their regular thing yeah. again. Yeah, because they're they're just trying to suck up extra water at this point. They're trying to give themselves a blood pressure and make sure that they're well perfused. And once you kind of reassure the body that, hey, here's three liters of fluid, uh, you don't have to hold on to all this water anymore. It's going to start to dump that water. The ADH is going to be suppressed and you're going to pee out all that extra water and your sodium will rise because now you're less dilute, if that makes sense. Other than the, the urine osmolality, is there any other testing or workup or avenues you feel like you would need to pursue before you started treating this presumed diagnosis? Or in this case, you, you feel pretty good about it? For, for this guy, I, would, I don't think I would need much more. If you're questioning it, right? Like, why would you question it? You know, are there other reasons for hyponatremia? You know, certainly. Um, you know, a, a urine sodium may help you with some of that, right? Um, if it's high, your, your kidney is not reclaiming sodium, you know, um, and those two things are handled separately, uh, water and sodium reclamation. So if it's a high urine sodium, you have to wonder, well, why? And that's, is that an ATN process, right? Are we, are we damaging the kidney physically or, you know, are you on a diuretic, right? Like I mentioned thiazides earlier, you know, um, that, that would help you clear sodium in that way. If it's low, it's really not terribly helpful because that could go with heart failure, cirrhosis, and sepsis, right? Uh, if you're just like kind of pre-renal and, and kind of dry, your your kidney's doing what it's supposed to be doing and it's sucking up sodium to help, you know, bump up your blood pressure. So um, at this point, I wouldn't be too, too much more worried. Um, I think if it was a more severe hyponatremia, you know, into the 110s, 110s, I would say we need to figure this out a little, you know, a little bit more rather than just saying fluid resuscitate and see what happens. Is that perhaps also in patient where you might have multiple processes? They seem hypovolemic and they're on a thiazide and they have an AKI and, and who knows yeah. what else? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I will tell you that most of the severe hyponatremias that come in in this setting are going to be exactly what this guy is, right? Uh, so a somewhat hypovolemic, hypotonic hypovolemia or hyponatremia where it was just, it was poor solute intake and hypotonic water intake and kind of a soft blood pressure, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, right, respiratory illness, whatever that may be. That's that's kind of how they tend to act, the, the majority of them. Tell me, you know, in my mind, the patient who is hyponatremic from hypovolemia and the patient who is hyponatremic from inadequate solute intake, you know, they're, they're malnourished or they're alcoholic or something, they seem like different mechanisms, but they often end up overlapping. Can we just kind of think of them as the same patient? Or are there any important differences? Uh, they're different um, because the person that is malnourished, right? You're alcoholic, you're tea and toast, whatever. Um, they're not going to get better if you give them fluid. 
right? Um, that is a long, long standing process where the hypovolemic, you know, kind of sick person is a probably days to weeks process. Um, and you can differentiate them based on what their urine, uh, your urine osm does. Um, and this is where we leave the ADH world a bit to where if you, if you compare them, both of the urine sodiums are going to be low in the, uh, the sick kind of hypovolemic guy, his urine sodium is going to be low because he's trying to reclaim all of that because he's poorly perfused. Um, and that's a signal for the kidney to, to reclaim sodium and the malnourished person, they just don't have any sodium to reclaim, right? Like they don't take any in because they just, you know, drink a 30 rack, of bush every day and there's no sodium in that, you know? So, um, their, their urine osm will also be low because osm output at some point equals osm input, right? So if they don't take any osms in, normally it's, you know, 1200 plus osm intake per day for a normal person. If they're only taking in 300, right. And they make two liters of urine, right. Their, their osm is going to be pretty low. It's going to be below 300. You know, um, they can have all the ADH action in the world and they, it's not going to go up because there's nothing there, uh, versus the sick person where their, their osm should be, should be higher than 300. Does that make sense? In both cases though, isn't it true that we're probably going to give them some sort of IV crystalloid, which will give them fluid and solute. And in both cases, they'll start to, or may even overcorrect and they'll sort of behave similar clinically. Yeah. The, uh, the sick person's going to overcorrect more, um, when you're talking about giving crystalloid, you know, uh, you can do the math. There's like equations out there that, that, that can tell you how, how much someone's serum sodium will rise based on how much you give them. Right. So if you give them a, a liter of normal saline, you know, and they're a usual 70 kilo person with 42 liters of body water, it's going to go up by barely a point. Right. So, um, that's assuming they're a closed box and they don't have any other intake, but, uh, it, it's just not going to be a, a lot because you're, you're, you're one liter in 42 liters of body water is just not a lot. So I see. So the uh, sort of ADH mediated problem can fluctuate very quickly, but if it's due to just mm -hmm. not having enough solute to, you know, concentrate your urine, yeah. then, um, that'll take a little while to build that solute back up. Exactly. Okay. Um, there's also kind of a concept of like medullary washout to where the medulla of the kidney is usually where, um, there's a lot of very, very concentrated uh, solute within the tissue, um, and that helps concentrate your urine, right? Because uh, as the tubule moves through there, um, water can enter or leave, right, through osmosis, and it wants to go to a place of higher solute, and that's how you can concentrate your urine, right? That's how you reclaim a lot of water. Uh, well, if you don't have solute to put there, over time it washes out. And then you really can't even concentrate because there's not a gradient there anymore. So that can happen. All right. So you're resuscitating this guy, presume sepsis, you know, kind of guideline based stuff. You get him upstairs. Uh, he starts to look better. Heart rate's coming down. Blood pressure's still a little soft, but, you know, stable, stable. Um, at what point do you or do you even recheck that sodium? Are you are you worried about? watching it or you just sort of get labs daily like you would on any other person and say i expect it's going to be a little low 
Um, I'd probably get another BMP after I gave him his initial resuscitation bolus, right? If I wanted to give him two liters, I'd give him his two liters. I'd say recheck a BMP. Yeah, because it's probably going to be two, three hours mm-hmm. after, you know, the initial one. Um, and if it's relatively stable, I'd probably check another one in four to six hours. Um, because we're not, we don't know if this is acute or chronic at this point, right? If it's chronic, we want to be much more cautious if this is acute, which is usually considered anything over two days or two weeks, two weeks, you know, the rate of correction doesn't matter so much in an acute scenario, but you don't know. So you play it safe. Okay. And, and so in this guy's case, we're not really trying to correct him, but you're saying he's going to correct himself. Yeah. If I'm right, he's going to correct himself. We don't, we just want to make sure he doesn't correct himself too quickly if this is. Exactly. Okay. Now, if this is a chronic problem, is, is he likely to correct himself too fast or? Uh, you know, that, and that's why I, I kind of get into, well, what is the etiology, mm-hmm. right? Because if this is, you know, a, a hypovolemic hypotonic scenario where he's just sick and he's not taking in solute and he's drinking water, that's probably acute, you know, um, but you don't know how long that's been going on. Right. Is this guy been kind of lingering for a month or has this just been a week because his kid gave him the flu? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't know. And, and so you just have to play it safe and say, I'm going to stick to the six to eight mil equivalents per day. Right. For 24 hours. Um, the chronic guy, you know, you know, how could you. I, there's not really a scenario that I can think of that you would be chronically hypovolemia, you know, hypovolemic hyponatremia. Right. Like all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of transports you more into the world of this like tea and toast area. And, but just by giving them fluid, like I said before, you're probably not going to correct them very quickly, but, uh, hyponatremia correction is one of those things where it's like, you don't see a lot of case reports about it probably. And, and the rumor is that it's probably because it's all litigated. So I'm not a big fan of like, you know, CYA medicine, but, uh, this is a scenario where you probably just want to be pretty cautious. Um, and just recheck, right? Uh, it's you probably don't need to do it. You know, sodiums at more than every three or four hours. I'm not really sure what the uh, the utility is of every hour, right? Because like by the time you get the result back, like it's different. <laughs> so, in a case like this, where overcorrection is mostly going to be due to you know dilute urine, do you think it's reasonable to just monitor the urine and if they start having a lot of watery polyuria, then you worry about it? Yeah, I really like doing that. Um, and just, I just get serial urinosms. And when that starts dropping, right, let's say you started at five, 600, you start seeing coming down, you know, um, definitely below that 300 mark, right. Where ADH is no longer acting. Uh, that's when you start to say, well, this person's probably at risk for, for overcorrection. Um, cause that's like right there in front of you and you don't have to stick anybody. They probably have a fully in the nurse can just collect it. Like it's easy. But, but I would kind of do that in conjunction with checking the serum, right? Like it, it's reassuring to see that the two, you know, kind of things going together, uh, urinosum's dropping, serum sodium is rising. You said, oh, well, this is the issue because then you have an avenue to fix it, which is some DDAVP, right? You just give them desimpressin, which will act as ADH stimulus and you put the clamps on, so to speak, right? And uh, they will start reclaiming some more water in their tubules and that will just slow that process. How do you feel about uh, giving them DDAVP ahead of time? Just avoiding the issue and yeah, I like it. I think if you're if you're worried about overcorrection, especially in a scenario of hypovolemia like this guy, I think it's a good idea. 
Um, 128, I'm not terribly worried about, but, you know, certainly lower numbers. Um, I would probably be, be using it. Uh, there's also a bit of like, who's at risk, you know, for bad outcomes during overcorrection. And it, it basically is a uh, longer duration of hyponatremia is at higher risk. Um, people with low solute intake, you know, malnourished, uh, alcoholics, right. People with, you know, these more chronic issues, um, and then severity. Right. So if your sodium is 105 versus 125, like the, the 105 person is way more at risk. Right. So um, I just tend to be more cautious when those things are at play. Uh, and there's, there's really not a big downside to DDAVP. So uh, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, if you're concerned and you don't want to worry about it, you should just give it and, you know, see what happens. So let's talk about correction. Um you know, so we we decided in this guy we didn't need to really worry about it. We're just going to rehydrate him and, and volume resuscitate him. But l- let's say instead of one twenty eight, he's one ten, um, or he's starting to show worse neurological signs. I mean, you you were saying seizures is your I need to deal with this right now trigger, but maybe something short of that, but something that makes you think that uh, you know it's not necessarily life and death emergency. I drop everything, but we need to really kind of start getting things corrected. Um, what are your triggers for being, a, I guess, more aggressive with correction? And then how are you doing correction? Uh, the, so there's, there's probably debate on who you want to look at for this. Um, if you're going to correct, right? Like correction is, is probably like a situational decision. And let's say like for me, it's going to be we're losing his mental status. It's getting worse, right? Like this is a guy that was like conversing. He's not really oriented, but is at least alert enough to talk to you, mm-hmm. right? now if you know, an hour later, he's like not doing it anymore. Um, I don't know, you know, maybe sodium got lower for some reason. I don't know. You can just make it up. Right. But, but he's just looking worse and you're concerned for hyponatremia. I would say, yeah, it's probably reasonable to go ahead and treat that. Or again, seizure is my big one. These other things we can manage, right? Like we can fix that issue and, and kind of correct, uh, when it's convenient, but, um, seizure, right. You can't just let somebody seize. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I were if I were going to correct, uh, like I said, it 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 depends on what guidelines you look at. The American guidelines are I don't want to say not great uh, because there 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 were not a lot of people who came up with them. Um, so the quality of that recommendation is not terribly high. The European ones are excellent. Like they, it seems like they got everybody in Europe who knew anything about sodium to talk about this. So I would. If you're looking for a resource, I'd go to them over the the American ones, um, and they, they basically say give a somewhat of a bolus of you know hypertonic three percent saline. Um, I think it's like 100 or 150 mils over 15 or 20 minutes, um, and then check a serum sodium, and then uh, don't don't stop. Like give it again until don't wait for your sodium to come back. Right give it, check it, give it some more until symptoms resolve or you've corrected by five mil equivalents. So, um, and there's some literature out there that says that, you know, most of these cases of true symptomatic hyponatremia where we're trying to correct a problem such as, you know, changes in severe changes in mental status or seizures, uh, they, they usually require about 500 mils of 3% given in somewhat bolus fashion. You're not bolusing 500 mils, but you're giving it at 100, 150 mil aliquots until you get a, a result that you like. So, 
um, or you corrected by five or six mill equivalents. At that point, you're kind of like, well, I'm not really sure this is hyponatremia. Maybe there's something else at play. Okay. So is it, and you're using 3% for that? 3%. Yeah. Is there a role for more concentrated? Um, could be like your 23 that you have yeah. in the neuro ICUs and stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, at that point you're just playing a volume game, you know, so with 3% there's, there's 500, roughly five, you know, 513 mill equivalents per, per liter. Um, with 23, I think it's four mil equivalents per mil, right? So you just can give less, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't do the math off the top of my head to tell you how much, how many mil equivalents of sodium is in, uh, you know, 150 mils of 3%, but you wouldn't have to have a whole lot of 23% to catch up with that. Um, speaking from experience, good luck trying to get a hold of 23% anywhere outside of a neuro ICU, right? You know, while we're uh, while we bring up the topic of neurocritical care, sometimes in those patients, a question arises: You have a patient who is initially not hyponatremic. Maybe they're completely normal, but you have acutely increased their sodium by the same amount that you might worry about correcting them from hypo to you know closer to normal. Like maybe they went from one forty to one fifty five in eight hours or something like that, because you're trying to treat you know, their brain problems. It, it, do you think there is risk in those people of osmotic demyelination or it's really the low to normal you worry about? I think it's probably the low to normal. Um, yeah. I mean, like theoretically, right. That's there, uh, because your body is adapted to run it, you know, a certain awesome load. Right. Um, and if you change that acutely, something's going to happen. Uh, but you know, there's not, mountains of literature out there that says, you know, you have to worry about these, uh, cerebral edema patients, right. Or somebody with a stroke or whoever that you raise their sodium 10 points and you know, they, they don't, they don't demyelinate. Like I, I almost never heard of that. So sure, I, I can't explain why that happens, but it's out there. Yeah. I was going to say a- anecdotally, we do that a lot in the neuro ICU. Yeah. We drive people. We- People will come in with essentially normal sodium. We'll drive them up to 145, 150, 155 even uh, intentionally. And I'm like you, I've never heard of um, demyelination occurring with that. I've never seen the literature on that. And and like yeah. you, I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I know this is different physiology here, but it's like the same principle of like hypoglycemia versus hyper, right? Like mm-hmm. for whatever reason, we just tend to not like the low range, can tolerate the high range a lot better. So mm-hmm. what about drugs? Do you Are you ever employing specific medication agents to correct folks or are you just predominantly just giving them salt? Um, you know, like for SIADH, um, where somebody's producing ADH and they really shouldn't be, um, a loop diuretic, uh, can help, um, because believe it or not, they actually contribute to free water clearance. Um, a thiazide will actually clear more sodium than than, you know, a loop does, uh, which is helpful in hypernatremia. But if you give them a little bit of Lasix, they should clear a little bit of free water and that should help. But, you know, it comes down to like, why is your, why is your sodium low, right? If it's just hypovolemia, we'll give you fluid. That's fluid's a drug, right? In my mind. Um, if it's SIDH, like I said, maybe a little bit of Lasix, but that really comes down to fluid restriction, which can be very, very difficult, you know, especially in some of these cirrhotic patients where, you know, you look at their free water clearance and they, they pee like, 500 mils of free water a day you're like well sorry you can't drink anything 
you know, heart failure, hyponatremia from that aspect, it's treat the heart failure, right? So whatever drug du jour that you want to recommend there. I remember years ago when I was a nurse in the cardiac ICU, I gave a patient tolbaptan for hyponatremia. Is that still a thing? Do we do that? And when's that? I really don't know. I mean, like I said, I don't deal with this stuff. I feel like that's a move with a specific goal in mind, which is usually transplant because there's certain, you know, I think it's 125 or something that, that they want you at or above to get a transplant. Right. So if this is just, um, you know, we're trying diuretics, we're trying to treat your heart failure, nothing is working. You know, we want you to get a heart transplant, right? Like here you go, Tolbaptan, right? Mm -hmm. It's less common in the liver transplant world because uh, Baptans have been associated with hepatic toxicity. Um, there may be some debate on how that was, how that originated, right? Um, they studied it in a lot of cirrhotics and so had a lot of bad liver outcomes. Maybe they had liver failure for other reasons, but uh, people tend to be wary about giving Baptans to, to cirrhotics, but you know, it's been done, you know, just mm -hmm. monitoring is much more intense. So, so, all right. So you brought up SIADH. Um, let's talk about what I think are the three things that sometimes confuse people when we're looking at hyponatremia, SIADH versus DI versus cerebral salt wasting. Um, for, first of all, is it even necessary or even helpful, uh, to distinguish between the three or do we just sort of treat the patient sort of like we're doing with this guy, right? We're just treating his sepsis and, or, or is it more of an academic exercise to say this is SADH versus cerebral salt wasting versus DI? Yeah, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, cerebral salt wasting, right? Like it's almost like a religion if you believe in it or not, um, and there's like some evidence that says it exists. And then like, there's another camp that says like, it's, it's not really there. I'll just say I'm i I'm agnostic on that one. Right. Because I don't really think it matters. Just treat the patient. Right. Mm. Um, look at the numbers and then kind of respond to that physiology. Right. If, if, if your nozzles are high, like think about that and think, what does that mean? Right. If you're, if there's a bunch of sodium in your urine, right. Think about that and say, well, what does that mean? You know, this, this may be ATN, you know, they can't concentrate here. I don't know. Um, but, uh, and then SIDH is also a little bit voodoo because I feel like if you spent enough time, you could find a case report for a, for SIDH that is due to literally any cause you could think of, right? Like, uh, from, you know, pain, the, uh, the, the phase of the moon, like whatever, somebody probably has blamed it on, you know, for SIDH. Um, so again, I, I just kind of look at the numbers and treat the treat the physiology there, right? So SADH, when I say the numbers, meaning low sodium, um, kind of low plasma osm, so they're hypotonic, but they're relatively euvolemic, right? They look like you and I, they're not hypotensive, they're not orthostatic, right? Uh, but they have um, a high urine osm and a relatively normal urine sodium. They're not trying to hold on the fluid and have a low urine sodium, right? Um, but if you see that person and you're like, oh, wow, you, you're just like persistently um, holding on to water for some reason. Um, you, can, you, can, you can kind of sodium challenge them, right? You can give them a liter of normal saline, which has 
bunch of sodium in it and kind of just see what happens, right? If uh, maybe they're just on the cusp of being dry, right? Like they're just there and we just can't really detect that, right? Because again, we're terrible at volume status assessments. You give them a liter of saline, uh, if they're dry, their urine sodium really shouldn't change, right? They should suck up all that urine sodium or let that sodium go through the kidney and it shouldn't really change. If they're truly euvolemic, they'll dump that sodium because they don't want it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you do kind of a pre-post and say, well, did this get better? You know, did your, did your serum sodium go up or down? And then what happened to your urine sodium? You know, because if you dumped it, then it's, it's SADH. Uh, also worth remembering that um, if you give a liter of normal saline with a osm of 308 uh, to somebody whose urine osm is 600 because their ADH is on, you know, is is activated, uh, you're going to drop their sodium, right? Because they will hang on to all of that water, get rid of all of that sodium, and you'll just dilute them by, you know, a further liter. So. Um, if you're going to give something, it has to be higher than their urine osms, which starts to become ridiculous, right? Mm. So uh, at that point, you just water restrict them or, or find the thing that's causing it. So I think the the upshot of all of this is if they're not seizing, then we probably have time to think. We don't need to get too bogged down in the numbers. Um, if they are seizing, then that definitely needs to get corrected because like you said, all the Kepper in the world, is not going to fix it. They just need probably 3%. We don't need to go crazy with the hot salts and uh, Vaptans, et cetera. Just some 3% boluses to kind of get them corrected to a, a stable place. Uh, and then the reason behind their hyponatremia is important in that we were looking for the sort of root cause that we can correct, but we don't need to get necessarily bogged down in the details of, is this SIADH, is this DI, is this cerebral salt wasting, uh, et cetera, so much as just treating the physiology of the patient we see. Is that fair? Yeah. Like in, in this guy, if you guessed wrong and he had, does have SIADH and you're giving him three liters of LR to fix his sepsis and resuscitate him in that regard, and then you drop him, you're like, oh, we guessed wrong. This is probably SADH, right? You just have to kind of look at the physiology and think about it. Like this is a very, in my mind, this is a very hard thing to like make into an algorithm, mm-hmm. right? Um, you say, well, why did his sodium go down? Oh, well, probably because his ADH is never going to get turned off. It's always on, right? Maybe he's cirrhotic, maybe he has heart failure, right? And we're just missing that. Um, just kind of go back and reassess. And and this is, I should repeat for everyone just to stress, this is in the sort of general presentation of hyponatremia. Uh, certainly we, we think of, at least in neuro, I see we think of people who get DI for brain reasons, right? For pituitary problems or whatever. And, and that's a little bit different of an animal, right? And that their sodium's not necessarily altered. Yeah. Most of the time DI will, you know, depending on how long it goes on, will, will make you hypernatremic, yeah. right? Because you're peeing out just a bunch, you're, you, you don't have any um, ADH action, right? So that's what DI is going to be. Um, just a bunch of dilute urine because you can't, can't suck up that water. So, yeah. And in that case you do want to give DDAVP, right? Yeah. That's the preferred one. Uh, we actually had a, we had a recent case, um, where somebody had like a cellar mass or something and, you know, they were peeing out like five liters of water a day and their sodium was like 160. And, um, there was a thought to put them on vasopressin because it's 
the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it was, you have to change the dose. Um, I can't remember what it is, right? But it's not the usual, you know, 0.03 units per kilo or whatever that we use for sepsis and shock. Um, it's much higher than that. So um, that kind of didn't didn't click in anybody's mind for a minute. And then, you know, when they fixed it, higher dose of vasopressin uh it worked but you know you gotta remember that a higher dose of vasopressin will also be a better a better vasopressor right, and right, you might yeah. not want that right so that's why ddavp is probably just better it's easier um you, you're gonna get a very focused response from that that's gonna work so cool yeah usually a mic or two every you know four to six hours all right. Well, I think we could easily wander into the world of hypernatremia if we're not careful. So, um, Brandon, do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah. As you said, there's probably another four episodes we could do exploring different uh, flavors of hypernatremia. Um, one question for you, just to briefly touch on the hypervolemic hyponatremias, which you know people will usually say is maybe your your cirrhotic patient and your heart failure patient. Um, is there really anything to do about the hyponatremia in these cases as far as actually treating it? Or, I mean, is it is it just kind of a marker of their disease? And if you can treat their underlying disease and maybe it'll get better and this is just kind of an annoying uh, lab that you'll keep seeing? Or is there anything to do about it? I kind of fall into that, that second camp of this is just a bystander, right? You're, it's part of their pathophysiology and you're probably not really going to make it go away. Um, they've adapted to it, right? Uh, this is something, you know, they didn't end up being a decompensated cirrhotic overnight, right? It took years and years for that to develop. And, you know, they, they've adapted to running around with sodium 120. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, I think it's worth trying to improve um, because it it does increase their, their risk of um, having complications the lower it goes, right? So... If you can get it up by better managing their disease, then you should do that. But if you've done everything you can and you think they're on optimal therapy and that's about as good as you can get, I, I wouldn't worry about it, right? Like, I wouldn't go giving them, you know, hypertonic because because now you're giving hypertonic, you're giving a big sodium load to somebody that doesn't need sodium. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I mean, we're talking about chronic states that you adapt to. Uh, you know, some of these other flavors are also pretty chronic. Do you think that the chronic, you know, let's say that malnourished patient, for instance, or the alcoholic or whoever, do you think their chronic hyponatremia is causing them problems if they're not like really obviously acutely altered or seizing or whatever, and that fixing it will help them in some way? Or are they just, it's like the chronically hypercarbic patient and we say, is it bad if their CO2 is always 80, you know? Probably not. I mean, like, like from a hospital admission standpoint, probably not. From a life standpoint, it's not good. You know, um, we know that chronic hyponatremia is associated with, uh, you know, osteoporosis and bone loss, right? Um, just off the top of my head, I can give you that. Um, there's probably some other things that are it's related to, right? But everybody lives in a, in a normal range for a reason, right? So if, you, if you're lower than that, then yeah, you're, you're not going to be obtunded, right? If you're adapted to that, but there's a price to be paid somewhere. Um, and over years, that's probably going to be an issue, but your two-week hospital stay, probably not that big of a deal, you know? 
I, I feel like I, more people are kept in the hospital because their sodium is 122. We want it to be 125. Well, it's interesting for some of those patients uh, because if it's related to something about their lifestyle, then very possibly they're going to go into the same state when they're discharged, right? I mean, if they go off, don't eat, they're drinking or whatever, unless you discharge them on a salt tab or something. I mean, it's... <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, as you bring up salt tabs, I feel like that's... Uh, I feel like you're just shooting yourself in the foot with salt tabs with these, you know, SIDHers or chronic hyponatremia just because um, salt makes you thirsty, mm-hmm. right? Go eat a bag of potato chips and you're, and you're thirsty and then you drink a bunch of water and now you're in a worse position for your SIDH or your cirrhosis or your whatever you have, right? So um, I, I would tend to just stay away from that. Honestly, I, I don't. And unless you're trying to like salt load somebody for a reason, you know, to get them up, um, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't just say here, here's some salt. So, so even in your, your SIADH patients in the hospital, you don't try to give them oral salt. No, cause it'll just pee it out. Right. Cause the sodium handling is separate, right? It's the same thing with that example of giving the, the liter of sodium or that liter of saline as a, as a bit of a challenge, right? Their body's going to see that and say, I don't need it because it doesn't really know that it's making ADH when it shouldn't be. So they'll, they'll take their three grams of salt tablets. They'll uh, temporarily raise their serum osm, which drives thirst. They drink two liters of water, and now their sodium's lower. Well, you could fluid restrict them in the hospital. You could. I mean, you could, but that's a, it's probably a form of torture, <laughs> right? So, so do you essentially do nothing for SIADH? Uh, you want to try to find the underlying issue oh, sure. and fluid restrict. But like I said, try to find the underlying issue some days. It's like good luck out there. The ones where you get lucky is where there's a, you know, a well-known offending agent and there's a timeline, right? Like you look in, you know, in April, this person's sodium was normal. In May, they got started on an SSRI. And in August, they came in with a sodium of 120. You're like, oh, okay, well, I bet it was the SSRI. You know, you stop it six months later, it's normal. You pat yourself on the back, you know? Um, that's not every one of them, but that's a, a good chunk, right? Um, where you, you kind of stop a couple of agents and, and hope for the best. Um, but otherwise, you know, you're always pushing fluid restriction. I had somebody once tell me that fluid restriction works for all hyponatremia, but it may not be the best idea in some cases, like if you're already hypovolemic. So, <laughs> so you, you brought up a good an interesting point that I, that struck me with something. So you said, you know, you, you give these people salt and their kidneys don't want it. They're just going to pee it out. And we see that sometimes in the neuro ICU when we, you know, attempt to sort of empirically raise someone's sodium because they have a lot of cerebral edema. Typically young people, they don't have a lot of room to swell in their head. So we want their sodiums high, but they also have good kidneys. Uh, and we, let's set aside the debate of whether empirically raising somebody's sodium to ward off cerebral edema is a good thing or not, because we could you know, I thought we were done a minute ago and we keep going, but that we'll really go for a long time if we go down that road. But you know, we'll we'll give these folks one and a half percent, three percent, and and it's just not budging their so, their sodium. And sometimes we'll even pull out fludrocortisone. What's the role of fludrocortisone in hyponatremia? Is there a role for it in the treatment of hypo tr- true hyponatremia? Uh, probably more from like, uh, you know, an adrenal insufficiency, right. But, but then you're glo- usually globally adrenally insufficient, right. Mm-hmm. So you're not using fludro alone, but right. You just don't have that 
of DOS thrown around, right? You're trying to replace that, you know, that, that mineralocorticoid activity. Um, so it's probably more of a chronic thing. You know, acutely, I'm not really sure what it does because it's a steroid and steroids take a long time to act, right? They have to, it's gene transcription and protein synthesis, right? That's probably not a, a thing that we're waiting around for in the ICU. Yeah. Um, I also kind of chuckle to myself when people give Fludro to ESRD patients who haven't made urine in years, right? Like you have to make urine for it to work. So, um, so there's that, but, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, your point is well taken that you're trying to raise the sodium and people's kidneys are just peeing it out. Um, I think one and a half percent is almost worthless, right? Because you're just not, there's not a lot of bang for your buck there. You would have to just give liters and liters and liters, you know, to, to make a difference. 3% is, is more worthwhile. Um, and I think this is where you get to your 23%, right? Like if you're really in a hurry and you really feel like you need to do this, I think, a, you know, some well-controlled 23% is, is reasonable. Um, especially in somebody with good kidneys because they are, they're just going to pee it out. Um, and you can, you can predict this, you know, I think off the top of my head, it's like you look at the, um, serum sodium and then what you're infusing minus the serum sodium divided by their total body water. Right. So, uh, if you're infusing 3% at 500 mil equivalents and you're trying to get them, you know, you know, 140, right. So 500 minus 140 over 42, whatever you do the math there and you tell me how much you're going to go up. It's, it's not by a whole lot, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe one or two mil equivalents. So you just have to give them a lot of liters to make that change. Um, so that's why I think something is 7% is kind of a nice intermediary, right? Uh, it's not going to be too caustic, right? Because 23 is that, that might, that might damage some cells, you know, locally. That's a lot. It's an emergency use mm -hmm. kind of situation. Um, Seven is nice. And, you know, we push 7% all the time when we're pushing bicarb amps. So, right, that's 8.4. 8. So, yeah, that's true. Right. So uh, somewhere somewhere in the middle ground is, is probably fun. Well, like I said, I thought we were done. And then we got off on another whole thing. And so before we get off on another whole thing and are here for another hour, I think we'll call it quits for today. Um, thanks, Paul, for coming on and talking to us about this. Um, I think uh, I feel better about this maybe i don't know it seems simpler and yet at the same time more complicated because now i have to understand physiology and think about it the lesson i'm taking away is that you don't treat hyponatremia it treats itself you know most like of the time that. that's probably true I honestly like I, I feel like uh, in the hospital um less is more sometimes and you know just just kind of figuring out why something happens is more important than um you know creating an action right so that's spoken like a real internist <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, all right. Thanks everybody for joining us as always. Uh, as always, what we've said is this is just for educational purposes and hopefully you're not using us as your sole resource to treat your patients. Uh, and our, this is our opinion, not representative of any of our respective institutions. Thanks again and see you next time. Mm -hmm.